Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Goodwill Hunters. In this episode, I'm chatting to Bridie Rice. Bridie is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Australian Council for International Development, Australia's peak body for aid and international development. Prior to joining ACFED, Bridie was a senior manager at Ernst & Young, delivering strategy, policy and project advice for domestic and international governments on social justice matters. She also worked in Papua New Guinea for three years as the Australian government's senior legal advisor on anti-corruption and money laundering. Bridie has over 12 years experience in human rights and international development, having worked in Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Vietnam, Uganda, Qatar and throughout the Pacific. She is currently completing postgraduate research with La Trobe University on counterpart perspectives of expatriate advisors in Papua New Guinea. Bridie is an emerging leader in the sector who is passionate about the intersection of development and human security, putting humans at the heart of Australia's International Development Cooperation Program. Bridie is a regular speaker to diplomatic and conference audiences in Australia and abroad. I've had the great honour of working with Bridie throughout 2019, and she is strikingly candid, articulate and knowledgeable. She's a wealth of insight and experience, and she shares a lot in this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. As we go to air today, much of the east coast of Australia is on fire. I myself was evacuated from summer holidays in the town of Threadbow in the southern slopes of New South Wales. As we drove up the Hume Highway to Sydney, being diverted on and off the road by the emergency services personnel, it was abundantly clear that this is not business as usual. This is a new era of environmental damage for Australia as over 9 billion hectares of our forests burn, far outnumbering other recent fires we've seen internationally. As we debate how we can provide more resources to our fire-affected communities and to our emergency services, we also remain in the middle of a debate over the future of our aid policy. When the need is greater at home, it can invoke debate over how we prioritise our spending. It's a topic I'll be bringing up with some of our guests in the coming weeks. Now, before we get to the episode, we're on the lookout for new sponsors. If you're a fantastic, socially conscious, for-purpose organisation and you'd like to share your great work with over 10,000 listeners across 56 countries, then please get in touch. Now, here's Bridie. Enjoy the episode. Bridie, thanks for chatting with me. Great to be here, Rachel. Thanks for having me on board. Okay, so ACFID and the IDCC, and I might get you to explain exactly who they are, uh, have called for a major independent review of our aid spending in Australia. What led to that call? Well, ACFID, and I'll, I'll explain, ACFID is the Australian Council for International Development. So we're the peak body for around about 125 NGOs in Australia. And the IDCC, which is the International Development Contractors Community, which is kind of the private sector equivalent to ACFID. Look, we joined together um, earlier this year and, and it was a pretty momentous occasion, right? Um, it was a moment where the overwhelming majority of Australian development partners were coming to government to say, hey, we need to revisit the aid strategy. And, and we were calling for a review that wasn't just about the spending under the strategy, but actually a review of the whole strategy and, and the program itself. So the primary reason was, was pretty simple. The world is changing. Right, Australia last refreshed its program in, in 2014 and it was nine years ago that we saw the last aid review. So it's time for us to take another look at what we're doing, 
why we're doing it and how we're going to make the greatest impact in, in the next few years. So that was really the primary reason behind why we were calling um, for a strategic refresh. You're right, though, we did also um, ask the government to have a look at, at the, the budget spending and the overall envelope of the aid program. And I think it's important to, to remember that we're already, the Australian aid program is delivering fantastic impact with with the funding we have. So over the last few years, Australian aid has helped around 2.5 million more children into school in Afghanistan, vaccinated almost 3 million children against killer diseases. But we've, been, we've really seen a cut of around 30% to that aid spending in the last seven years. So something's got to give. So it's not just ACFID and the IDCC at this point in time asking the government to, to revisit the budget. Um, we've also seen a, a bipartisan parliamentary report asking for an increase. We've seen the OECD DAC calling, a, a group of international allies around aid, calling for increases in, in development expenditure. And most recently, we've seen 25 experts drawn from the fields of development, defence, and, and diplomacy ask for that too. So I guess um, from ACFID's perspective, we think it's time to have a look at the strategy and it's it's probably inevitable that we need to have a look at the budget as well. Um, but that's because at, at our heart, we think we're a generous nation and, and our development spending is just not matching that. So Australia ranks second in the 2018 World Giving Index. 1.5 million people donate to ACFID's members and 60% of people um, in Australia want the Australian aid money going to the poorest of the poor and those in need. So at this point in time, aid spending is absolutely at an all-time low. And I think it's fair to say that IDCC and ACFID and, and probably many others would much prefer to be having a conversation about the overarching strategy and impact of our development spending. Um, but it's inevitable that we're going to have to visit that budget question thereafter as well. That's an amazing statistic that you just shared. I've not heard that before. Can you say it again? Were the second in the generosity index? Yeah, that's right. So second in the 2018 World Giving Index, right? So um, Australians are, are extremely generous. And, and I think the, the, the interesting poll that we did last week shows that this argument that aid needs to be about Australia or that aid ought to be in the national, national interest alone is just not holding the Australian public. Um, they're smart enough to know that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So that's, that's a really interesting take on it. And as you said, I think that everyone's probably quite exhausted of the discussion around raising the aid budget. And we'd all much prefer to talk about effectiveness than to talk about the amount itself. But, you know, we still need to be there because the amount's still not what a lot in the sector would like it to be. I think I'd like to take that opportunity to ask you then. There's a lot of debate around the 0.7% um, marker for aid and whether or not that is still a good indicator of aid spending or has it become redundant over the decades. Um, where does ACFID stand on, on that metric? Look, the 0.7% aid marker is, is something that is a, an absolute benchmark, right? The UK have legislated it. I think that many of us in, in the sector over the last few years would absolutely love to see an Australian aid program reaching that marker. But we're also realists, right? And I think the, the more important question is, do we have the balance right? So for example, if we look at defence spending, we see that it, at the moment, it is about nine times that of aid. Now that's not to say that Australia doesn't face really serious geostrategic questions. It's not to say that there are not really, really good reasons for spending money on defence. 
but we feel as though it's a little bit out of whack. I think the debates that the sector is having around the the significance and the relevance of that 0.7% marker are really interesting and those debates are likely to continue as we enter this aid review, which is a good segue into the fact that we are now having an aid review. Whether or not that was the aid review that the sector and ACFID had in mind is a separate question. But um, uh, for listeners that aren't, I mean, we've covered it quite a lot in recent episodes, but for listeners that aren't um, familiar with it yet, could you perhaps give a bit of a timeline of what's happened recently and, and what this aid review is that we now have underway? Absolutely. Look, ACFID's been calling for a strategic refresh of the aid program for quite some time now. We obviously saw the joint statement that we made with the IDCC earlier this year, and we've also called for it as part of our election policy platform. Um, and we've been speaking with a number of leaders um, in over the last six months, really saying, hey, it's time to have a look at what we, what we need to do. So what we saw on the 10th of December was the launch of a review in Sydney by Minister Hawke um, and that review will be led by an advisory, an independent advisory panel chaired by Dennis Richardson and the review will involve a number of roundtables we understand between the Department of Foreign Affairs and, and the ministers to discuss where we think the future of the Australian Development Program will go. It will also involve the calling for submissions, so there is a website um, that DFAT has put up calling for four to five page submissions from the sector by the 31st of January. And I think what we're anticipating is that in this rapid period of consultation, um, we'll need to have a couple of really big debates and then we'd expect that the government will be engaging with us on a number of, of issues come February and March in 2020. Now, obviously, you can't go into too much detail about that meeting in Sydney on the 10th of December, but it, it is encouraging to see that that there was a launch and that members of the sector were brought together to discuss that. Um, can you give a sense of the attitude and the sentiments that you've been hearing towards the review? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, this review is is a real opportunity for the sector. Um, the people that were in the room, and, and I attended a, a roundtable that involved um, NGOs and, and managing contractors and a couple of academic experts as well. Um, I think the, the mood was, hey, wow, this is fast, was one reaction that we all had. Um, coming into Christmas, of course, everybody loves spending time with their family and friends, and, and instead we're going to be burrowing away on a, on a, on a submission. So I think that, that um, the, the pace at which this is moving is probably the overarching reaction that, that the sector would have had. Um, but beyond that, I think for us and certainly in the ACFID membership, this is a moment of absolute opportunity. I mean, we are seeing this... Um, as a point in time where we've all collectively realised, and I know you've had guests on your podcast uh, saying this, Alan Gingell, Melissa Connolly-Tyler, that we are seeing our, our diplomacy and our spending go, going down whilst our defence spending is increasing. Um, but in the face of that, we don't want to engage in our region based on fear. Right? So we're seeing this as an opportunity to create an aid program that puts Australia out in the world, building the relationships and the prosperity that we want for the future. So from, from the ACFID perspective, we're really excited and buoyed by the opportunity for the review. Um, it is a chance for us to look at, hey, how can we partner with other nations? How do we share our expertise to, to tackle the world's complex issues and really get on the front foot in starting a greater and more positive engagement with the world? So we're 
we're seeing this as a, as a chance to create the type of aid program that is the face of Australia in the region um, and make sure that that reflects who we are as a nation. That's a really interesting statement that you made there, that we don't want our aid program to be guided by fear. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? I think aid programs in general are buffeted by a number of competing interests. They're pulled in lots of different directions. First and foremost, they need to respond to global disasters and and critical issues that impact on development and poverty in in the region. Um, They're buffeted by desires of governments, desires of private sector, desires of the public perhaps. And so for us, I think it is that moment where we say, okay, do we want a development program that simply looks after Australia's interests in the region and puts Australia first? Or do we rise above that and say, a development program that invests in the lives of the people in the region, that creates peace, that creates inclusive growth, that creates economic prosperity, um, is the sort of region that we wanna be in and we want to invest in a development program that can create that future um, and and go big with it. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have been able to bring together um, professionals who work across development, defence and diplomacy. Um, can you go into a bit more detail on that? And I'm specifically interested in those seem like very divergent groups to me. Uh, are they united in a view about our aid program? Earlier this year, um, we we brought together around about 25 influential leaders from, from development, diplomacy and defence sector. So included the likes of Bill Farmer, Brendan Sargent, Robert Glasser, Melissa Conley-Tyler um, and people like Anthea Roberts from the, the economic and, and geoeconomic fields of, of academia. And we did that because I guess what we're realising at ACFID is that it's no longer good enough for development people to be just speaking to development people. And so we're piloting a couple of initiatives designed to, t- to challenge, I guess, the delivery effective development assistance at a more systemic level. So what we did in order to establish that dialogue was we worked with people like Gareth Evans and Alan Gingell to establish a basic proposition for the dialogue. And that is the greater strategic collaboration between all of those individual fields of foreign policy, between development people, between diplomatic people, between the defence people. The greater collaboration between those fields will ultimately help Australia address the unprecedented challenges that we're facing. So I think what happened when we got into the room um, was the first thing we realised is that, gosh, we should be doing more of this right? Um, The second thing that we realised was that perhaps where we thought we might have very, very divergent interests, in in fact, we're on the same page more than we thought. Um, And the third thing we realised is that unless we have an opportunity to bring those interests together and have really robust debate about what our international relations portfolio needs to look like, then we're probably going to miss the boat in, um, in, in making Australia's international engagement the best that it can be going forward. So the dialogue produced a chair's statement, um, which is, has now been made public. Um, and certainly the energy from the dialogue was, was very, very strong. But the sort of the driving conclusion was that we need to be actively looking to coordinate um, and, and work between the different strands of foreign policy a lot more closely um, if, if we're going to create a better region and a better future for Australia. 
That's great. And given that that is public, we can include a link to that uh, statement in the show notes. I think just just staying on that point for a second, I think what's really interesting is the role of the defence force. And we've covered it quite a bit in episodes, including with um, Labor MPs Pat Conroy and Mike Kelly, who were both quite keen to talk about the influence of our defence force in our aid program. Um, do you have a sense of maybe why it's been so hard to reconcile development with defence in the past? I think that for some and in some parts of the foreign policy portfolio, there are challenges reconciling defence interests and development interests. But I actually think there are parts where we're absolutely on the same page. So I think about some of the amazing work done in in humanitarian disasters, in in civil military operations, where we have NGOs and and non-government individuals working side by side with the Defence Force um, for great impact. And I think Australia has actually seen some real success in this. Um, If you think about our work in in East Timor um, during the period of independence, if you you also think about the work we've done in Ramsey, I think we've actually got some great precedents um, where military interests and development interests have come together in an emergency and and really cracked on to do do a good job. Um, I think where the difference might lie is is in recognising that there are just certain things that defence cannot do um, that development spending can. So, for example, defence isn't set up to invest in agricultural responses to to food and water shortages, for example, or to research, track and deliver health services um, in order to shift disease patterns. Um, Defence doesn't run education programs or or perhaps respond to climate change issues um, that that, uh, cross boundaries. These are things that our development program addresses. Um, and ultimately, if the development program addresses them really well, then we can actually reduce defence spending. Um, so in the US, uh, the, the quote that really comes to mind is that of the Secretary of Defence, um, James Mattis, who, who says, if you don't fund the State Department, that is their, their diplomatic and, and development experts, if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition. And the more that we put into the State Department's diplomacy and development efforts, hopefully the less we have to put into a military budget. So from my perspective, I don't necessarily see a binary either or, you know, either you're in the development interest camp or or you're in the defence interest camp. I actually see it as, as a continuum. And we have conversations around Canberra with senior defence people like this all the time. And all the time, including at that dialogue we held, we hear from them that development is important. Um, Ultimately, they see, and we see, that the development program helps build peace and stability from the ground up. And certainly when I chat to friends and colleagues in those communities, it's it's just a no-brainer. Using the development program to help prevent disease and conflict and create an educated region is, is frankly a much better investment than needing to send our sons and daughters into battle um, when things go wrong. Yeah, you've put that really well. And I, and I think there's that uh, statistic that comes up quite a lot in discussions on aid, that defence spending is nine times that of aid. And is that an appropriate ratio? But when you put it the way that you've just put it, it isn't binary. It isn't either or. Um, they should be complementary to one another, at least. Um, if not actively cooperating with one another at best. 
Absolutely. And I don't think there's there's really any benefit to anyone pitting one port part of our foreign affairs portfolio against the other. Um, but that's not to say that there isn't a bit of an imbalance that, that could be corrected going forward. Now, before we move off the topic of the aid review, um, the other element of the discussion is the proportion of aid funding that the managing contractors receive versus what the NGO sector receives. And We've been talking a bit on this show recently about how about 10% of the aid budget goes to NGOs and um, I think around 20 to 25% goes to the managing contractors. Is that problematic in your view? Oh, Rachel, I mean, this is a this is a fascinating debate. Um, I started my career in development in, in the multilateral space with the United Nations and then switched into government for a little while. Um, spent some time in the private sector, and of course now I'm I'm working in the NGO sector. Um, so the first thing I'd probably say is that there are there are passionate, talented people creating great impact everywhere, um, but that those organisations are sometimes good at good at doing different things. So I don't necessarily think that there's a perfect answer to the question of, you know, do we have the ratio right? Um, 25% of total aid spend on managing contractors versus say 10% for NGOs. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the right question. And, And I think that the better question is, are we spending our aid dollars to achieve the greatest possible impact? So are we using NGOs for what NGOs are good at? Are we using universities for what they're good at? Are we using managing contractors for what they're good at? The same with multilaterals. So the question I don't think should be, hey, I've got a program, should I fund an NGO to deliver it or fund a managing contractor to deliver it? I think it should be, what is the development problem we're trying to solve and who is best placed to work on it? And and in fact, if you dig a little bit deeper um, into this sort of NGO versus managing contractor um, divide, you, you actually discover that the, the divide is a bit artificial. And I think each type of development actor has its comparative advantage. So, I mean, DFAT's own Office of Development Effectiveness, which is the evaluation unit within DFAT, has described the NGO program as one of the best performing programs and reports that it delivers 18.2% of DFAT's development results. So almost 20% of the development targets that DFAT sets itself are being delivered for only about 2.7% of the aid budget. Now that's extraordinary value for money. So for NGOs, I guess the comparative advantage is obviously our deeply embedded people to people approaches and networks of thousands of volunteers all over the world and our understanding of, of populations suffering serious poverty. Um, so I think that a better conversation is what are the results of we, that we're achieving and are we funding the right organisations to achieve those results? And I think we'd have a, a much more constructive discussion. So I don't think there's a perfect spending ratio out there, um, but I do think that maybe government does have some questions on its hands about how it chooses to, to generate a really robust and, and diverse range of delivery partners for the aid programme. I absolutely agree. And I think when we're talking about how the government chooses to spend the aid budget, we do know that a very significant portion of that aid budget is now going to the Pacific. So it's been a very big few weeks and months for the Pacific step up. Um, And another debate we're seeing is, is our focus on the Pacific dangerous? And is it um, at the cost of our aid programs to other parts of the world? 
Yeah, look, the, the Pacific Step Up has, has been really welcomed by our sector. I think I think it's a fantastic thing to see Australia engaging at such a senior and consistent level. Um, I mean, in 2019 alone, we've seen constant jet setting by Prime Minister Morrison, the Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Maurice Payne and, and Minister for Deve- uh, International Development, Alex Hawke. And I think that it shows a really consistent and a very senior presence in the region. Um, and I think these ministers are, are putting a personal touch on their engagement um, that's that's really resonating with Pacific leaders. Um, I think we've also seen a, a, a great initiative trialled in the establishment of the Office of the Pacific. Um, for your listeners who you know who don't live in Canberra, um, if you can imagine um, an environment where for the for, you know one of the first times ever we've the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade have brought together um, a whole of government coordination unit. They have one office sitting there that includes not just staff from the trade portfolio and the foreign affairs portfolio, but they're sitting alongside secondees and transferees from Department of Defence, Home Affairs, Environment, Finance, Treasury, our police. I think this is a great example of Australia trying to grapple with what does our presence in the region look like as a country rather than just what does our presence in the region look like as an aid program, as a health initiative, or as a security initiative, right? So I think in general, the Pacific Step Up has meant, firstly, greater engagement, senior level, greater attention on on our role and and our place in the Pacific, and and this piloting of, of the new office of the Pacific. But I think it's also quite early days. So I don't think we genuinely know how the experiment of the Office of the Pacific is going. Um, and I think that there's a lot of us around town who are watching it watching it very closely. Um, so I think whilst in general the, the Pacific step up has been welcomed, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Rachel. I mean, the key risk that comes with this focus on the Pacific is that it comes at the expense of other things. And we don't agree that the step up in the Pacific should be at the cost of a step down elsewhere. Um, so bilateral aid to Africa, has already been virtually wiped out. Um, aid to Asia, almost half. This is really hitting the aid program hard, right? So in uh, 2019 and 2020, the Pacific will receive an unprecedented 35% of the aid budget um, with over $1.4 billion pledged. Um, but DFAT has also said that this comes at the direct cost of Australia stepping away from Pakistan. Money that we have been spending in Pakistan to to place 1.7 million Pakistanis in the position of having food assistance, um, providing nutrition supplements to over 100,000 women, um, renovating 24-hour health facilities that are delivering critical health services. This will be no longer. Um, so, so make no mistake, this isn't just moving a few dollars here or there or a slight re-emphasis in budget or policy orientation. Um, the, the money that we are using to step up in the Pacific is money that is directly being eliminated from other areas of the world where Australia's aid program has been operating. So it's fair to say that whilst I think it's perfectly logical for Australia to step up our engagement in the Pacific, we really need to have a long, hard look at what the cost of it is. And I think that the the aid review is, is going to be an opportunity to do that. I find those facts about Pakistan so hard to hear. Like Stephen Howes also said them on the show, and it's it's unthinkable really to to try to comprehend over a million people not having 
the same access to education they had when we were funding it. Like it's a really, it's quite, it's quite jarring, isn't it? Like it's a really hard thing to comprehend. It's absolutely shocking. And I think those of us that work in, in aid and development and particularly those of us who are, who are currently in, in Australia working on these issues, we, we've got a duty to remind ourselves that this is real people, real money, real decisions that are being made. Um, and, and that's not the only shocking statistic um, going around. Yeah. Now, uh, before we get uh, uh, off the topic of our aid program specifically, um, we are seeing a changing uh, face of the aid program in terms of the transition from grants to loans um, that we're seeing in a lot of the Pacific. And you've worked in the multilaterals. I've worked for the World Bank as well. And, um, you know, it was quite commonplace for when a country reached a certain level of economic growth, they would move to um, loans instead of grants. So that's not that's not uncommon, but I know that it did take a lot of people by surprise um, when P&G was given over $400 million uh, as a loan. Um, what, what's been your experience of that transition? Yeah, look, the decision to make that, that $442 million loan to P&G, I think, um, I think it was a surprise to a lot of us in the sector. And, and I think it does say a lot about the changing face of, of how Australia does development. Um, but I, probably the first thing that I would say is that that loan was not strictly part of Australia's official development assistance program, right? So the loan was developed on commercial rates for one year to provide budget support for PNG at the time of economic difficulty. So this one in particular is not necessarily an example of money being taken out of the aid program to fund a loan, although there are a couple of examples of that that being um, being done. But our understanding at the moment is that the Australian government is anticipating a bigger multilateral bailout for PNG, and that was a rationale for this loan. I think for us, though, the concern comes in around the transparency of, of the loan initiative. So there was very little information available at the time about the terms of the loan, um, any economic reform required for PNG, and, and we still don't know a lot of these details. And I think that was our key concern, um, that this loan will, would ultimately fall on the Australian taxpayer. And as such, there needed to be more information made available. But more broadly, I guess our concern is that we're not sure that's how we should be making major new decisions. So this move um, uh, uh, also signifies, I think, government's appetite and, and willingness to use different financing um, for development countries than we've, than we've seen in the past. So it's not just program financing, as you said, but we've seen the establishment of an infrastructure financing facility in the Pacific. We've seen funding of an undersea cable deal with Australia, PNG and Solomons. Um, and we've seen a number of emerging impact investment funds as well. So I think in general, whilst I think our sector is, is quite open to diversifying um, the ways in which we do development, and, and in fact, Australia is one of the few countries that doesn't have a, a development finance institution, we're just worried that we're doing it in a piecemeal way and we're doing it in a rushed way. So rather than considering um, uh, and taking the time to consider the establishment of a development finance institution, instead we're seeing small uh, uh, small periods of time being taken to make major decisions and we just don't think that's a very constructive or strategic way to enter into these these new financing mechanisms. Great answer. Okay so now 
on the topic of Ackford. So I imagine a lot of our listeners are quite familiar with Ackford already. A point I wanted to make is Ackford's annual conference was held in October in Sydney. Um, And the theme of the conference this year was First We Listen. And how that manifest was there was quite a lot of speakers compared to previous years who were from Pacific Island countries and other countries. And the focus was really on listening to the people in the developing countries um, that a lot of us work in. Um, I found it really inspiring and it actually made me um, consider how we can adopt a similar theme on the podcast, which there will be more of in 2020. Um, But I'm interested in sort of the origins of that theme and what what led the Ackford team to make that decision. Thanks, Rachel. And and look, uh, Witches had such a fantastic reception, uh, particularly to that first half day of the conference, um, where we just, uh, we heard from five Pacific leaders who were just speaking passionately about the future that they want for their countries and passionately um, about our role in it. Um, so I think it was it was probably best summed up by Reverend James Bagwan on, on stage when he said, listening isn't about listening to our cries and our problems, but also listening to our innovations and our solutions. And, and later he said, you know, the truth is we don't want a handout or even a hand up. What we want is genuine consultative partnership. Um, so I guess here in here in Ackford, that is absolutely a, a core value um, of ours. It's it's our starting point for development. It's a starting point for um, our members who sign up for for our code of conduct. And so we've consistently put that listening theme in some way or other in in all of our conferences, um, whether it was Dame Meg Taylor in 2016 or or Sunam Naragi in, in 2018, who's the Executive Director of the International Civil Society Action Network, um, we've really taken seriously um, the opportunity to provide that platform where you have 400 people from the development sector convening on an annual basis and making sure that uh, that the voices of the Pacific or the broader region um, are, put, are put first. Um, on a personal note, I um, the, the way that it came up was frankly a, a workshop with a bunch of rather fabulous Ackford employees where we sat down and we were really worried. Um, we were really worried that our development program may not always be putting the interests and the voices of the people that it's meant to serve first. And so it was a very deliberate and symbolic action um, on behalf of Ackford and and yeah, it touched me too. I think um, I was not the only one to, to shed a tear seeing, seeing those leaders delivering their messages. Yeah, well said. That's a great note to finish on. Thanks, Bridie. That's it for episode 60. I hope you enjoyed it. And if I didn't say it at the start of the episode, I'd love to wish all of our listeners a very happy, prosperous, safe and fun 2020. We've got big plans here at Goodwill Hunters and I look forward to sharing them with you soon. That's it for this week. See you next week.